Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. And you might be saying, didn't we look at that last week? And if you are saying that, the answer would be yes. And if you're saying, didn't we look at that the week before? The answer would also be yes. And the week before, the answer would also be yes. When I outlined uh, the Sermon on the Mount to teach through it, I had allocated only one week for this passage, but here we are, uh, fourth week, and the, the reason why we're looking at it, this again is because it's important that we take time to digest what Jesus is teaching here. I, I just felt again this week that if we moved on, we would be moving on too quickly, that we really need to marinate, if you will, to, to soak in this teaching because it is so different from how we think when we are an unbeliever. It, it, when, when we, before we come to Christ, we have a certain way of thinking that is, is different from how a believer is supposed to think. And this is a major shift in our thinking that sometimes even after we come to Christ, how many of you have found that you, you tend to hold on to some of the old way of thinking? And even the old way of living. And what we need is the Word of God to wash our minds, to cleanse our minds of that old way of rebellious thinking. And this passage is one that's important in doing that. And if we're going to be salt and light in the world, we need to let the, the, the saltiness uh, seep in to us. So we're going to look at this again one more week. Um, you know, the pace we're going through Matthew's gospel is, seems to be very slow, and there is 28 chapters, but oh well, it's the Word of God, and uh, it'll be profitable and fruitful for us. And so we're going to soak in this today. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a recap on some points, but I, I thought it'd be important to do that, and then I'm going to address uh, some questions that have, have arisen and try to do my best to answer those for us. This morning. So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all. Is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. Pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. It is, as the psalmist says, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we live in a world that is uh, a, a dark place. It is so full of, of darkness, so full of evil, so full of, of ways and thinking that are, are contrary to you and to your ways and to, to your thoughts. Lord, your thoughts are beyond our thoughts, above our thoughts, so far above our thoughts. 
Even as the heavens are higher than the earth, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are above our ways. So Lord, this morning we ask that you would teach us your ways, that you would give us your thoughts. Lord, that that we as your people would pattern our thoughts after your thoughts, that we would pattern our ways after your ways. Lord, you created us in your image. Every single one of us here today bears your image, bears your mark, bears your stamp, that we might show forth your glory, that we might live out and and, and be the salt and to be the light. But Lord, if, if the salt has lost its saltiness, Lord, we're good for nothing. If, if we're a light that isn't shining, we're good for nothing. So, Lord, we, we don't want to be good-for-nothing Christians, but we want to be those who bear your image and bear it well, faithfully, because you've called us for such a time as this. It's not an accident, the days that we live in. Lord, it's preordained and predetermined for, before the foundation of the world that we would live in these days to bring you glory. So, Lord, help us through this time in your word and that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, some questions that have come up over uh, the last uh, few weeks, even some objections, and I want to do my best uh, to to answer some of those this morning. But first, I I just want to again draw your attention once again to, to press this into your heart, Jesus' view of the law. In our Bible, we, we see this division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is how it's divided in our Bibles, but how many of you know that the first Bible that was printed on a printing press was only 500 years ago? That, that this, this division would, would not have been something that Jesus would have been aware of. The New Testament hadn't even been written in the time that he is living. This wouldn't have been a a division that the early church would have thought about. Most of the early church would would have been uh, considered themselves very fortunate if they even had a copy of one of the Gospels, even had a copy of of one of Paul's letters. It it took time for the, the, the New Testament to... To, to go out and, and, and to be copied and, and, and to proliferate to the point where it could be bound in a book where the Old Testament scriptures were also bound together. And so for the first century in the early church and the early Christians, li- living under this division of the Old Testament and New Testament, they would have known nothing of that. Because their Bible didn't even have the New Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament. This is an artificial division that uh, many Christians live with today where they unfortunately want to just chop out the Old Testament from their Bible. And in fact, I have some Bibles that don't even have the Old Testament. Do you ever have a Bible that just has the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs? They literally just cut it out. And that, I mean, that's, you know, it's a little tiny Bible. You can fit it in your pocket real nice and easy. But this artificial division is one that Jesus would not have approved of. And we see that here where he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I came to fulfill them. Jesus' view of the law, I've shared with you that it is three things. He views the law as true. What's in the Old Testament is true. That what he said, that the, what, what it says happened is what happened. That is what Jesus believed and taught. And so if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to say we believe in Christ, we need to believe what he taught about the Old Testament, which is that it was true, the very word of God itself. Not only did he believe that it was true, but I also have shared with you that he believed that it was good. It was good. It was righteous. And even the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 119 talks about that the law of God is perfect. And it is so good and it is so perfect, it needs no revisions. It doesn't need updates. It is so perfect that even the punctuation is inspired, Jesus says. Every jot and every dot, he says. Every single stroke of the pen all the way down to an iota or a dot, he says, is the very word of God and will not pass away. That it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the law of God to pass away or to be altered in the smallest sense. So yes, the law of God is good and yes, the law of God is true. And then thirdly, the law of God is abiding. It continues today. And that Jesus said that he would come and that he came to fulfill God's law. We looked at how he has fulfilled it. That he fulfilled the moral law of God by his perfect obedience. That he never once sinned, that he never once committed a sin. That though all of us have broken God's law, have transgressed God's law, we are all sinners, the Bible says. Christ never once sinned. Tempted at every point as we are yet without sin so that he could go to the cross and offer up his life of righteousness to redeem those of us who are unrighteous. Amen. That he lived without sin to be the spotless lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And so he fulfilled the moral law of God by keeping it perfectly and he fulfilled the sacrificial system by dying upon the cross. All of the, 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 the rituals and all of the, the feasts and all of the, the purification rites that the law of God talks about, Christ fulfilled that. Christ fulfilled it through his perfect sacrifice. We looked at that through his death and through his shedding of his blood, all the other sacrifices have now ceased. Because his was the one that they were all pointing to to begin with. And that now as the, the great high priest, he, he continues as a mediator in heaven, interceding for us on our behalf so that we would be reconciled to God through his perfect work on the cross. That we could have our sins forgiven through his fulfilling of the sacrificial system. So that we can be reconciled to God, not by our own works, but by the work of Christ. Amen. Amen. We looked at last week our view of the law. We, we saw the first few weeks Jesus' view last week. 
he began to teach about how we should view the law. That we should not seek to relax or to not do the commandments. That, that those who do that will be called least in his kingdom. But that we should seek to, to teach God's law and to obey God's law. And that those who do that will be called great in his kingdom. So some of the questions, some of the objections have been, didn't Christ come to set us free? This sounds, again, like, like legalism. This sounds like you're, you're leading us back to Mount Sinai. Didn't Christ come to, to set us free? Didn't he come and promise to liberate us and to give us freedom? And to that I say, yes, he did. Absolutely he came to set us free, and he did set us free. Christ has set us free. If you are in Christ today, you are free. We have freedom in Christ. So much freedom in Christ. And the freedom that Christ came to bring us was freedom from sin and death. That's what Romans 8, 2 says. That he came to set us free of the law of sin and death. Christ came to set us free. And he came to set us free from sin. And what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is breaking God's commandments. That is what sin is. So Christ came to set us free from sin. Christ came to set us free from breaking God's law. Not from keeping God's law. To, to, to think that Christ came to set us free from keeping God's law or to put Christ in the same category under the same mindset as Satan himself. Christ came to set us free from breaking God's law and to help us to keep God's law by his spirit. Now, I understand that there is a, a natural a natural aversion to the law of God. But that natural aversion to the law of God is rooted in our sin nature. It's rooted in our, our, our sin nature. It's rooted in the old man. It's rooted in death. We, we looked at last week this term antinomian, anti-law, that all throughout church history we can trace these antinomian attitudes because they come from our sinful heart. But we cannot trace antinomianism, lawlessness, law-breaking. We cannot trace it to Christ because Christ perfectly kept God's law and Christ said that he did not come to abolish God's law and Christ said that he, in his kingdom, was about teaching God's law and keeping God's law. So, so these anti-God law sentiments are not rooted in Christ and Christianity 
but they are rooted in the sinful heart of man. And you can trace this sinful heart of not wanting to live under God's law. How far can you trace that back? All the way back to where? The beginning. The Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. Where God created Adam and Eve and He created the world and He made them in His image and He gave them dominion. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And and this is what it looks like to live in the world that I made. And he walked with them and they had fellowship with God and intimate communion, which we were all designed to have with God. But then here came the serpent. Here came the snake. Here came Satan. And said, there's another way to live in God's world. There's another way to live. You don't have to live under submission to God's law. What did he say? He said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And then he said, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Look, come this way. Follow your heart. Follow your path. Go down your pathway of self-actualization and self-discovery and et cetera, et cetera. Don't live under God's law. God's trying to keep good things from you. You can be like God. God who is autonomous. God who is free to, to, to declare and decree and to create. You can be like that for yourself. You can be autonomous from from God. You don't have to live under his rule and reign. Now we know Jesus said that Satan the serpent is a liar and the father of lies. And that Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve was, Adam sinned willfully. Eve was deceived and Adam sinned willfully, the Bible tells us. Deceived by the lie of Satan. Because what they found was that They didn't find freedom. In in fact, they found bondage and death. They found bondage and death. And all of us have descended from Adam, and we all inherit that same attitude towards God in our natural state. This natural desire to live on our own, live autonomously apart from God's law, to do as the T-shirt says to follow your own heart. Follow your heart. Don't follow God. Don't live under his rule and his commandments and his reign. And so this, because of sin infiltrating the human race, this philosophy of of lawlessness, this philosophy of wanting to not live under God's law, not live in submission to God's law, it's deeply rooted in every human being and every human heart. And this is a sinful view of liberty. A sinful view of liberty is one that says, I am autonomous to go my own way and to follow my own path. That is a deception. And Jesus taught clearly that that kind of thinking does not lead you into liberty, but leads you into bondage to sin and death. That true liberty, according to the word of God is now having been set free by God to live for Him. That is true liberty. 
to live free from the bondage of sin, to live free from Satan's grip. And hear this, to live free from the destruction that comes from living a life bound to sin. When you live a life of sin, destruction is not far behind. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to set us free and to give us an abundant life, walking in fellowship with God. Satan's path is to steal kill and destroy. Jesus also lived a perfect life of submission and obedience to the Father by keeping God's law. So we must never get it into our minds that the abundant life that Christ came to bring would somehow be separated from walking in obedience to the commandments of God. Right? Jesus came to give us an abundant life. Would we say that Jesus lived an abundant life? How can Jesus give us an abundant life if he himself doesn't possess that abundant life? And the abundant life that he modeled for us was one of perfect submission to the law of God. So so we must never get it into our minds. Jesus says, do not think these thoughts. Therefore... God's law is not bondage. God's law is freedom. God's law is freedom. I want you to think, who did God give his law to? We know he gave his law through Moses. But who, who did he give it to? The children of Israel, right? And where did he give it to them? Mount Sinai. Let me ask you this. Did he give his law to a bound people or to a free people? To a free people. You see, the children of Israel had been bound. They had been enslaved. Under Pharaoh, a taskmaster, a type of Satan. In Egypt, a type of the world. And God, through Moses, told Pharaoh, let my people go. That what? That they may worship me. You see, they could not worship God. They could not serve God bound to Pharaoh. They were not free to live for God and to follow him and to walk in his ways because they were enslaved in Egypt. And so God set them free so that they could live for him and in fellowship with him. And so on Mount Sinai, having set them free, he gives them his law to show them this is how a free people live. This is what it looks like to live in fellowship with me. So he gives them his law. He didn't give his law to a bound people. He gave his law to a free people. And he didn't give his law to a free people to lead them back into bondage. So the law is not bondage. The law of God is true liberty having been set free from sin. We now live for the law of God, under the law of God, to keep God's commandments. So God set them free in Egypt so that they might live for him and walk in fellowship with him and worship him. So the thought goes, but we're part of the new covenant. It's different now. 
And you're right, it is. It is. We live under a better covenant. It's much better. None of you had to come in here today with a goat <laughs> or a bull. We're able to offer up sacrifices of praise. Sacrifices of praise. It's a, it's a new and living way. It's a better way with Christ. But Jeremiah 31, flip back there with me to Jeremiah 31. I want to, I we, we looked at this really briefly last week. But Jeremiah 31... The new covenant is what Jeremiah 31 is all about. The new covenant. So what does it look like for us? We're not part of the Mosaic covenant. We're part of Christ's covenant, the, the new covenant. What does this look like for us? Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Those days that he is talking about are the days that we live in. We are part of the new covenant. In verse 32, he says that, that this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What is this new covenant? I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. This is the new covenant that we are a part of. Notice here the problem with the old covenant was not God's law. The problem with the old covenant is that it was given to a people who broke his law. The, the problem was not with the law, but it was with the hearts of those who received it. He says that they broke the covenant even though I led them out. And so I'm going to make a new covenant... And this new covenant is not going to be written on tablets of stone, but this new covenant is going to be written on the hearts, the very human hearts of those who are a part of the covenant. And that a part of this covenant will be that everyone who's part of this new covenant will know me. That we are designed to know God, to be in relationship, to be in fellowship with God. God. The way it was under the old covenant was that, that there, there were those who were of faith, a part of Israel, and there were those who were not a part of the faith. 
And so they had a priesthood and they had prophets who would go around and they would say, know the Lord and, and serve the Lord and, and follow the Lord and this is His Word and this is His law. But God says there's a new day coming when I will make a new covenant and I will write my law on their hearts and they will know me and I will forgive their sin and I will forgive their iniquity. And you and I who have put our faith in Christ we have been born again by the Spirit of God. We are part of the new covenant. So we don't need the external pressure of people coming and telling us, you better serve God, you better live for Jesus, you better follow Him, you better walk in His ways. No, why? Because we know Him. And we have the Holy Spirit alive on the inside of us that convicts us of sin. That, that draws us into righteousness and, and holiness. And, and where the old covenant, it was an external pressure from tablets of stone, the new covenant is this internal relationship with God where He leads us and He guides us and we're designed to walk with Him. So that our desire to keep His law that He is writing on our hearts is not based on any threat of judgment because Christ has been judged in our place. Because our sins and our iniquities have been forgiven. We're not living under the threat of judgment. That is not the motivation for keeping God's law. No, the motivation for keeping God's law is that we know Him. And that we love Him. And that He has saved us. And we want to know this God who has saved us. And we want to be in fellowship with this God who saved us. And we want to be close to this God who saved us. And anything that would come in and try to, to take us away from, from His plan and His purpose for our life, we don't want any of that. We just want Him. We want Christ. And so God is writing His law on our hearts, our, the, the, the attitude towards the law of God changes now. Because when I was a sinner, when I was in sin, the law of God, it was that mirror. It, it revealed my sinfulness. The law of God for me as a sinner is, is not something I enjoy. It's not something I want. It, it shows me how sinful I am. As Paul writes about the, 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 the man in in. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 7, battling sin, who says, oh, wretched man that I am. That, that law of God reveals that to us. But now that Christ has saved us, now that he has put his spirit in us, now that he has set us free from the penalties of the law, that he took our place and he took our punishment and he took our death upon him, and that he rose again on the third day. So that all who have put their faith in him will likewise share in a resurrection like his. That our attitude is the same as his. We Now with God's spirit, we love God's law. We want to keep God's law. We want to obey God's law. We want to walk in his ways. This is a work of an inward transformation. This is why... Any flavor of Christianity that would say keep the law to be made right with God is a perversion of Christianity. That we are made right with God only through Christ's keeping of the law and through our faith in His work. That is what makes us right with God. But now having been justified, do I continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. And so while, while we were in our sinful state, and even in our sin nature, despises the law of God because it shows us who we are without Christ, now with Christ. The law of God is no longer that, that mirror that just reveals to us our sinful state. The law of God becomes the guide, that lamp unto our feet and that light unto our path, showing us the ways of God that we can walk in and the blessings that come from walking in His ways. Now, some would say, well, God's writing His law on my heart. And so whatever my heart wants to do, it must be okay. I prayed about it. I have a peace about it. I don't need any external, anything from the outside. I don't need to study God's word. It's just God's writing his law on my heart. So whatever is there is just good and well and wonderful and awesome. Well... No, no. And how do I, how can I, how can I say no to that? Well, because I can look at the way the apostles carried out their ministry. What's the apostolic example? They're, they're ministering under the new covenant. They're ministering to people who are born again, filled with the spirit of God. What is their example in, in, in walking with the people of God? The apostolic example, let's go to Romans 13. We looked at this last week. Let's look at it again, Romans 13. What do the apostles do? Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 8. The apostle ministering under the new covenant where God is writing his law on the people's hearts. They're filled with the Spirit of God. What does he do with them? What does he tell them? Verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So some would read that and say, I just got to love people. I'm just going to love people. I'm just love you, love you, love is love, love wins, love, 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 love. Just love everybody, love everything. Well, in case we would have that definition of love, Paul immediately goes to giving us the true definition of love. Verse 9, for the commandments. Whoa, where did that come from? I thought we were talking about love. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, that's the rest of the law of God, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So our definition of love does not come from the culture... Our definition of love does not come from the world. Our definition of love comes from above, comes from God himself, comes from heaven. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And so when I keep God's commandments in my relationship to my neighbor, I am loving my neighbor. 
That's what Paul is saying here. He's talking about love and then immediately he quotes from the law. There are so many people who today who would say that the law and love are, are like opposed to each other. Did you know love your neighbor as yourself is quoting from Leviticus? That's in the law of God. That's not something new. That's something old. That is made new in Christ. And the way it is made new is that through the new covenant, Christ changes our hearts so that we want to love our neighbor. That we have the desire to love our neighbor because we have new hearts and new desires. Notice here, Paul, what's he quoting from? He's quoting the Ten Commandments. He's giving us a summary of the Ten Commandments. From Exodus chapter 20, I want you to flip back there with me. We're, we're going around today. We're moving through some stuff. I'm trying to answer some questions. I hope this is helpful. Exodus chapter 20. I think this is maybe the, the number one question that has been on people's minds about the law of God and the believer. Paul here is quoting from Exodus 20, so let's go and look at the context. Let's look at it. Let's look at the full section, Exodus 20. Again, these are the Ten Commandments. This is the moral law of God summarized. Given to the children of Israel, a free people at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How many of you can say amen to that? Amen. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment one. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Or that is under the water. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's commandment two. No idolatry. No bowing down to idols. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's number three. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your 
neighbors. These Ten Commandments, I think we would all look at them and say, yeah, that's pretty good. Not murdering, check. Not lying, not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness. No idolatry, serving God, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all on board for all of that. And then there's that fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And here is where a, there's just a lot of all kinds of stuff all over the place. So the question arises, do we as Christians keep or observe the Sabbath? And I was going to say something really provocative here, but I'm not going to say it because, because I don't... Are you all paying attention? Because you really have to pay attention. Okay. Do we as Christians keep and observe the Sabbath? Yes, we do. And in fact... I don't even know if I can say this. It's so intense. It's just going to rock your world. I'm going to explain it after I say it. But if you do not observe the Sabbath, you are not saved. Whoa. Let's go to Hebrews. I'm going to get out of this as quick as I can. Go to Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews, Hebrews. Where's Hebrews? Oh, I can't find it. It's not in my Bible anymore. Hebrews. Uh, go to the book of Hebrews. Because the New Testament is the light by which interprets the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews talking about the Sabbath. The resting on the seventh day. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews, New Covenant, says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, the Sabbath rest, it still stands, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, the them he's talking about is those in the wilderness, and those who did not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. That's the context. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That those who heard the message at Mount Sinai, those who, there were those who responded in faith and believed it, and those who rebelled and didn't. And those who rebelled did not enter into the rest, the Sabbath rest that was promised them. But, he says... In verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 11. You can read the rest on your own this week. The, the, the same context is the Sabbath. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. He says, we who have believed upon Christ and believed in his work on the cross. That we have entered into the Sabbath 
rest. So when I said that if you don't observe or keep the Sabbath that you are not saved, what I was meaning was that to be saved, you must rest from your works. You must rest from your efforts to be made right with God. That we rest and we Sabbath in the finished work of Christ. That is what the Sabbath is about. That Christ performed the works for us, and so we rest from our labors of trying to be made right with God, of trying to appease God, of trying to please God, because Christ has done the work for us. And we who believe have entered into that rest. You don't have to work to make God, to make yourself right with God. Christ has done all of the work for you. And so by believing upon Christ and by resting from our works to be made right with God, we enter into that Sabbath rest. Now he says that we should strive to enter that rest, which means that there will be times in our lives where that religious idea, that spirit of thinking that we earn our relationship with God will try and creep back into our minds. And we have to constantly wash our minds with the word and recognize, no, I am not saved by my own works, but I am wholly saved by the work of Christ. I will cling to the old rugged cross and his work for me on my behalf. Now that is the law of the Sabbath fulfilled in that way by believing upon Christ and his finished work. But I would also submit to you that there is an abiding principle of the Sabbath. And this principle of the Sabbath is one that is given to us for a blessing. Jesus said that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man... No, reverse that. The, the man, that mankind was not made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man. This day of rest, working six, resting one, this pattern that goes back to creation, that this is how God made the world. And that we would do well as a, as a practice of wisdom to observe this principle in our lives. Of working six days and resting one. That this is a godly principle and it is a good principle. That when we observe it, we live in the blessing of God. When we set aside a day in our week as holy unto the Lord. That is observing the principle of the Sabbath. The law of the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ and we rest in that. The principle of the Sabbath leads us into blessing because God gave us the, this day of rest as a blessing. That if we just work and work and work and work and work and never rest, our whole life will be out of balance. Our marriages will suffer. Our families will suffer. Our health will suffer. That as a, as a principle of wisdom, we should work for six days and rest one. So if you are your own boss, if you are, are uh, an employer, this, this is going to be hard for you. This is going to be difficult for you. This is going to take faith for you to set aside that day. You're going to have to work extra hard at this to, to, to take a day off. One in seven. 
Now, now some of you have to work on Sunday. Some of you, like me, have to work on Sunday. So my day of rest is not Sunday. And some of you have to work on Sunday. But you need to pick a day of rest. And you can't pick it on, you know, Friday and say, well, I'm going to try and... You can't run like a rolling tab. Pick a day and make it that day and make that day your day of rest. You will be blessed by God if you do so. You will see God's blessing in your life. And it takes faith to put this principle into practice. Just like tithing, by the way. This is just like tithing. It's a principle that God blesses. When we set aside that tenth of our income as holy as unto the Lord, it takes faith to do that. So it does when we take one in seven days and set it aside as holy as unto the Lord. I'm not going to work on this day. God, I'm going to trust you to provide for me in the six days that I'm working. But this seventh day is set aside as holy as unto you. We'll get one last passage today. And then we will conclude this principle of the Sabbath. Resting the law of the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ. By his work, we rest from our works to be made righteous. Wisdom would tell us to work six days and to rest one. We live in a country where it's, it's work five days and you get two days off, which is pretty awesome. And if you're, if you're in that kind of situation and you're not even taking a day of rest for the Lord, we, we have no excuse if we're in that situation. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, the law of the Sabbath fulfilled in Christ, I rest from my work in his finished work. There is a principle of the Sabbath. I believe wisdom would teach us to work six days and to rest one, to set it aside as holy as unto the Lord, to rest and to worship God. But I am not to pass judgment upon you for how you implement the principle of the Sabbath. Do not pass judgment. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So, some of you will observe the Sabbath. You will observe the seventh day. You will set aside sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. And you will take that as a total day of rest and relaxation and meditating on the goodness and the blessing of God. And you will rest and you will feast and you will enjoy that day and set it aside as holy unto the Lord and praise God. You will have an awesome time if you do that. Some of you, your work demands that you work on Saturday. And so you will have to find another day to, to, to set aside. Some of us will observe this principle as they did in the early church on Sundays. On the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead. You will set this day apart as unto the Lord as holy 
And some of you have done that, even including our evening service. And this is a day that I've set aside to the Lord. It is the Lord's day and it is holy as unto him. And God will honor that also. And those who are required to work on Sunday, when you set aside another day as unto the Lord, God will honor that and bless that day as well. What this passage tells us to not pass judgment on one another for how you implement the principle of the Sabbath. So there is a great degree of flexibility. There is freedom in Christ. But we would be wise to not work ourselves to the bone. The Sabbath was given to us to be a blessing. And if you are an employer, if you employ people, if you have people who work for you, don't text them on their day off. Don't don't make them work on their day off. Give them a, a day to Sabbath, a day to rest, a day that they can devote to the Lord. I think that would be a way to honor the Sabbath as an employer as well. So these are some helpful things, uh, just trying to tie all this up. Hopefully you kind of see how all of this works now. And if not, I don't know, I can't help you anymore. I'm, I'm just, that's it. We're, we got to move on, okay? So I invite you to stand with me uh, this morning. The goal for us is that we should seek to honor God. Because God has written his law and he is writing our law, his law on our hearts, that he is changing our hearts to, so that we would love him, that we would serve him, that we would obey him, that we would desire to be close with him. So the orientation of our life is towards him. That's what leads us into his word. That's what leads us to study his commandments. And that's what leads us to obey his commandments. Not from external pressure, someone saying you have to do this, but through the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we're part of the new covenant. It is so much better. And we celebrate, just as we did earlier, the work of Christ for us in our behalf. And, Lord, today we rest from our labors in that finished work that you have done for us on the cross. We Sabbath and and view and see that you have completed the work and that you declared that the work was finished. Lord, we thank you for that, and we celebrate that today. Lord, as we go out from here, we go out as missionaries. We go out as salt and light to take your word and your gospel to the ends of the earth. Give us opportunities this week to shine for you. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.